The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Before we get started tonight, I just wanted to share part of a piece of music that I've been listening to over and over again over the last few weeks. And this comes from Ludwig Göransson's score for the movie Oppenheimer about the development of the atomic bomb. And it's the main theme of the movie, and so it recurs a handful of times throughout the film in slightly different ways. And what it seems to be is just this huge, almost expansive exhalation of of brass, of a, of a horn. And the sound of this recurring throughout the film suggests a lot of things to me. It sounds like the landscape of New Mexico, this huge wide open space where the bomb was developed. It sounds to me like the mind of the scientists or of just the awe and rush of creativity itself, whether in science or in art, of people's minds just opening out and going places, no matter where that happens to be. And since it is brass, it also just reminds me, or it seems that in another movie, it might well go in the direction of a marching band, almost, of patriotism, of uplift, of positivity, of triumph, even. There's almost a note of triumph in it, but the genius of what Gorenson does with it is that he doesn't let it get that far. Because beneath the, uh, the brass part, there's either strings or percussion or synthesizer or other instruments that match that sound or run alongside it or dance with it. But every time, uh, the sound that's running underneath it, the music that's running underneath this theme, ends up being in conflict with it. It ends up showing the confusion and the darkness that is underlying the theme until it's entirely broken up. So let me just play a minute from this here, and then we, then we can get going with tonight's episode. So in keeping with the idea, I suppose, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, of cities under attack, uh, we can get into tonight's episode. The first part is taken from the Roman historian Livy and his account of the 387 BC sack of Rome by the Gauls who came down uh, into the Italian peninsula and were able to make it all the way to Rome and uh, have a bit of destructive fun while they were there. In the next part, we will fast forward to the very beginnings of World War II, 
uh, the French diarist and art historian and scholar Agnès Humbert, who lived there uh, in the early months of the occupation and became involved with some of the earliest uh, work of resistance. And in the very last section, we will hear from the great English poet William Blake, and we will see the city of London uh, sort of poured through the sieve of his prophetic imagination, and we can see what Blake is going to do with all of that. So let's get down to it tonight, right after this message. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the year 387 BC, ancient Rome suffered one of the worst defeats in its long history. It's certainly one of the most psychologically damaging defeats in its long history because it just rippled for centuries after that. And this is when uh, Celtic tribes or Gaulish tribes uh, swept down from the north into the Italian peninsula and ended up sacking the city of Rome. And for centuries after that, at least up until uh, Caesar made his uh, campaigns into Gaul and into barbarian Europe, uh, it, was all, it was almost as if Rome were a child being put to bed at night. And there was always the worry that the parents would scare you with, um, the Gauls may be coming again. There was always the worry that this would happen. And this was well before uh, Rome was was what we think of it as being now as the conqueror of the known world. In 387 BC, the wars with Carthage, the two Punic Wars, were still more than a century away. And so what we think of as Rome is a, a city that is still trying to uh, grab all of the Italian peninsula for itself. And if we just look at the account of, or at least just a few details, of the account of when these Gauls swept down and sacked the city, we can see something very vivid, and uh, you can understand why it lived in their memory for so long. To give us the background, I have a, about a page or so from Susan Wise Bauer, who has written The History of the Ancient World, uh, from the earliest accounts to the fall of Rome. And I've spent a, a, a good bit of time trying to find good histories of Egypt and of Rome and of Greece and of Mesopotamia and all of that. And uh, without question, Bauer's history is the best one volume of that period that I can find. And you might be able to get a sense of that just from this. And what she begins with is that, um, as I was saying, uh, all of Italy was not Roman at this time, and they had just fought a sort of exhausting 
war with the Vei nearby. And this is what Susan Weisbauer picks up soon after the Romans defeated the Vei. It says, the overstretched army was just taking a breath when a plebeian named Caduceus came to the tribunes with an eerie warning. He had heard in the silence of the night an inhuman voice saying, tell the magistrates that the Gauls are coming. The warning was laughed off, partly because, partly because Caduceus was a person of no consequence. Rome was still suffering from its patrician complex. But hard on the heels of this vision came a message from the city of Clusium to the north, the old home base of the fearsome Lars Porcena. Thousands of Celts had indeed suddenly shown up at the city gates, waving weapons. It was a terrible situation, writes the Roman historian Livy. And in spite of the fact that the people of Clusium had no official ties with Rome or reason to expect her friendship, they sent a mission to ask help from the Roman Senate. The danger must have been extreme for Clusium to imagine it would override the past hatred between the two cities. And all you have to do is read the earlier books in Livy's History of Rome to understand uh, that past hatred. Uh, but the Gauls were an enemy that tended to unite the peninsula. If Rome had been able to send troops to fight them, it would have. But after the constant fighting of the last 30 years, the Senate had no real aid to give. Instead, they sent ambassadors to convince the Gauls to settle peacefully in the area, rather than overthrowing Clusium by force. And you think of the French, or of uh, what became the French, doing the same thing in about the 10th century with the Vikings, um, eventually uh, deciding to pay them off and telling them to settle in what became Normandy or the land of the uh, northerners or the men from the north. Uh, this might have been a fruitful discussion, except the Roman envoys lost their tempers when the Gauls defied them. The Romans drew their swords and the Gauls, who needed little encouragement, took this as a challenge. They flamed into an uncontrollable anger, which is characteristic of their race, says Livy, and they set forward with terrible speed on the path to Rome. And from all the immense host, covering miles of ground with its straggling masses of horse and foot, the cry went up to Rome, to Rome. The Roman commanders hastily lined up their army at the Tiber, about 10 miles away from Rome. But the line was so thin that the Gauls at first held back, suspecting a trap since the Roman soldiers were so few. But when it became clear that these men were all that the overextended army could muster, the Gauls plunged into the front ranks of the Romans. It was first a slaughter and then a rout. Roman soldiers, fleeing, drowned in the Tiber, pulled down by the weight of their armor. Half of the survivors got to Veii and shut themselves in. The rest made it back to Rome, but their number was so obviously insufficient to defend the city that the whole population retreated to the heights into the capital, um, to higher ground, leaving the rest of the city below them unguarded. And after that, we can go right to Livy. Uh, 
what, is, what do we say about Livy here? Um, his history of Rome uh, constituted 142 books back when it was written, and I believe only uh, 40 or 42 of those survive, most of it from the early period of Rome, which includes uh, the first five books, which is what I'm going to read from tonight. Now, this is uh, Livy's account. When, did, when was he writing? Uh, he was born in AD 17, so that's a good idea of, um, is that right? He died in AD 17, um, and he was born in 64 or 59 BC, and he is writing this history of, uh, of 387 BC from the sources that he was able to gather. And this is his account of what happens, only little bits and pieces, because it is a long account of what happens after this encounter with Rome and the Gauls realize that they can just head right into the city. He says, uh, their sudden victory seemed to the Gauls like a miracle, virtually paralyzing them. At first they stood rooted in shock, as if not comprehending what had happened. Their next fear was that this was a trap. They then turned to gathering the spoils of the slain and piled up the arms in heaps, as is their custom. And at last, with the enemy nowhere in sight, the army moved forward and reached Rome a little before sunset. When the cavalry that had been sent ahead to reconnoiter reported that the gates had not even been closed, no, sent no sentinels were stationed before the gates, and no armed men were to be seen on the walls, they regarded this as another miracle, much like the first, and they were brought up short. Fearful of the darkness and not knowing the layout of the city, they settled down between Rome and the Anio River, after sending scouts around the walls and the other gates to find out what the enemy was doing to meet this desperate, desperate crisis. Imagine this, this tribe of, of Gauls, of barbarians, who don't know anything about city life, and they suddenly come to this place and they realize they can perhaps go in there and do whatever the hell they want. Um, it's almost too much too quickly. And Livy gives an account of the Romans inside and the long night they suffered up on the heights. But then he says that uh, things changed for the Romans in the morning. Uh, Livy says a complete change had come over the city during the night and in the course of the following day. The Romans were not the same as those who had fled in such a panic at the Alia. For when they saw no hope of defending the city with a small force at, on hand, they took the following decisions. The young fighters, with their wives and children, were to retire to the citadel and the capital, that's the higher ground, where food and weapons had been gathered, and from this fortified place they were to defend gods and men and the very existence of Rome. The flamen and the priestesses of Vesta were to take the sacred objects of the nation far from the carnage and the flames, and the cults of the gods were not to be abandoned as long as any survived to perform them. If the citadel and the capital, where the gods resided, if the senate, which guided the ship of state, and if the youth of military age survived the ruin that threatened the rest of the city, the loss of much of the or of most of the older people 
would then be bearable, for they would perish in any event should they remain in the city. And in order to make the mass of plebeians endure their fate with greater equanimity, those seniors who had celebrated triumphs and those who had held the consulship proclaimed that they would die along with them, and that they, who could not bear arms or defend their country, would not be a burden to those in arms by depriving them of the sustenance they needed to carry on. So when I began this episode by saying that Rome wasn't quite what we think of as being Rome yet, I of course only meant that in the sense of uh, territorial expansion. The attitudes of these people, uh, when you read a paragraph like that, uh, they are already very much Roman. And here we get to one of my favorite details in all of Roman history. Uh, at Rome, meanwhile, after everything possible under the circumstances had been done for the defense of the citadel, the throng of elders returned to their homes down in the lower part of the city, and they awaited the enemy's coming, and they were resolved to die. Those who had held curule magistracies, wishing to end their days wearing the insignia of their former fortunes and honors and merit, they seated themselves on chairs inlaid with ivory placed in the center of their homes, and clad in their most august raiment, worn when they had escorted the images of the gods in solemn procession or when celebrating a triumph. Some writers affirm that, with Marcus Folius, the Pontifex Maximus, dictating the formula, they also swore to sacrifice their lives to save their country and the citizens of Rome. The Gauls had not been under the pressures of war during the night just ended, nor had they at any time been engaged in a battle whose outcome was in doubt, while at present they had no need to use force or violence in taking the city. They entered Rome through the open Colline Gate, neither in anger nor keyed up for battle, and on reaching the Forum their eyes looked to the surrounding temples of the gods and to the citadel which alone seemed prepared to oppose them. They departed the forum after leaving a small protective force in case of attack from the citadel or the capital, and they scattered in search of booty. They met no one in the streets. Some plunged in a body into the nearest buildings, others continued to places far off, as if there they would find houses as yet untouched and full of plunder. But the very solitude make, made them uneasy. You can imagine this as well, how vivid this description is. These people who don't know cities suddenly wandering into one, and there's nobody there that they can find. The solitude makes them uneasy. Wary of falling into a trap as they wandered about, they returned to the forum and the places nearby and grouped together. And there... And there, on finding the houses of the plebeians bolted and the doors of the nobles flung wide, they were almost more hesitant to enter those that were open than those that, were, that barred their way. Indeed, they gazed as in veneration at the beings seated in the vestibules of their homes, for their attire and bearing surpassed those of mortal men, and in majesty of countenance and gravity of expression they were most like to deities, these old people, right? 
just sitting in their chairs in their houses waiting to die, not giving a shit about these gulls and ready to just give them looks. Um, they approached them, the gulls approached them as if they were statues. And as they stood there, Papirius, one of the elders, is said that when a gull touched his beard, because all wore full beards in those days, he is said to have struck the gull with his ivory staff. That's not a good move. The gulls were enraged and a massacre began and the rest were cut down where they sat. And after killing the leading statesmen, no one was spared and the houses were ransacked and emptied and set on fire. And it's a much longer account in Livy about uh, what came before this moment and what comes after it. But that, for me at least, is the most vivid thing. These old Romans sitting in their houses, waiting for these Gauls and being ready to die. Now, let's jump over to Paris in World War II. And now we move on to another city under siege more than 2,300 years later. This is Paris under Nazi occupation. The Germans marched into Paris unopposed on June 14, 1940. And one of the, the great events that happened beforehand were the millions of people that uh, streamed out of northern France ahead of the German army, and then how Paris seemed to almost literally empty itself, except of the poorest people who were unable to find any way to leave. And there were millions of people uh, on the road going south, not wanting to be in Paris when the Germans came in. This is a subject that has fascinated me for a long time, and I was able to write uh, two essays for the magazine World War II History about this, and I will put links to them in the post description. And one of the reasons I thought that a magazine article was a good idea for these things is because very little has been written, or very little is available in English, just about this exodus from Paris. And the best book that I found, really the only book that I found is by Hannah Diamond, and it's called Fleeing Hitler, France, 1940. And that is where I got nearly all of my information about the Exodus South. But what happens after that? Uh, when uh, the French people realize that uh, France has fallen and that Paris is under, under occupation and that uh, the country and its capital will not be fought for. There will not be fighting in the streets of Paris. What do they do? Well, they come back to Paris, don't they? And that begins um, another fascinating aspect of all of this, where the calculation becomes, or the question becomes, for so many people living in Paris among these occupiers, of what uh, collaboration means. And this is a much larger topic 
that I can't get into here. But what I wanted to do tonight was just spend a moment with a few remarks from the diary of an art historian named Agnes Umber. And what she was able to do was she was part of one of the earliest resistance organizations in France. So if we think that the, uh, if we know that the, the exodus from Paris took place in late May and early June of 1940, people were already starting to come back in August and September of 1940. And I believe that uh, Agnès Humbert was arrested along with the rest of her group in January or February or even March of 1941. And so what we think of as the French resistance really didn't include them, but uh, they were very important in the inception of the idea of just kind of annoying the German occupiers and just doing small things to, uh, to show their dissatisfaction with what was going on. And one of the reasons that I also wrote an article about uh, Agnès Humbert is because she was a member of a group of what I called in the article the scholarly spies of the early French resistance. These are all middle-aged, mostly middle-aged or older people, and they are all involved in the humanities and the art museums and the universities in the city. If we just look at a list here, there were, was an Egyptologist, um, Librarians, translators, lawyers, journalists, accountants, concierges, nurses, pharmacists, and many other people who all worked in uh, the museums around the city who were trying to save their collections, their art collections, but also the collections in their libraries. But then at some point, as we're about to hear from Humbert's diary, uh, they began to wonder what else they could do themselves. And so I just want to read a few passages leading to one of the most powerful statements I've ever heard uh, about war and about the occupation of a city by an invading army. But early on, let me see what the date is on this. This is on August 6th of 1940. So uh, Umber is already back in Paris in early August. And she says, at the Palais Royal metro station, I noticed a Paris gendarme saluting a German officer with obsequious servility. Rooted on the spot, I watched as he repeats the gestures over and over again for the benefit of every passing officer, stiff, mechanical, and German already. And she says later, suddenly I blurt out, uh, when she meets one of her friends, she says, suddenly I blurt out why I have come to see him. Telling, them that, telling him that I feel I will go mad, literally, if I don't do something, if I don't react somehow. And her friend confides that he feels the same way and that he shares her fears. Uh, the only remedy for us, she says, is to act together, to form a group of 10 like-minded comrades, no more, and to meet on agreed days to exchange news, to write and distribute pamphlets and tracts, and to share summaries of French radio broadcasts from London. And that's one of the interesting details about all of this, is that suddenly these very small actions, such as listening to the BBC and hiding, those things which were forbidden uh, by the German occupiers suddenly become uh, 
not only these these life-saving gestures for the people doing them, you think of all the small details during COVID of our daily lives that helped save us and keep us sane, um, that suddenly had this huge importance to us that wouldn't have had this kind of importance earlier on uh, before the pandemic. And it's sort of the same way. It's this wonderful idea of people crouching and hiding, listening to the BBC, and feeling that they are doing something, that they're getting one on, getting one by the Nazis. Um, a moment later, she mentions again, uh, simply talking about our organization makes us feel better. And her friend is already joking about our, quote, secret society. And if you go through and read uh, Agnes Humbert's uh, diaries, it's just called Resistance, A Woman's Journal of Struggle and Defiance in Occupied France, uh, you'll notice there are many details along the way where you can understand why this is very early on in the French resistance. You can understand, uh, you get many hints that these people are middle-aged and quite don't know what they're doing, and that they're kind of naive, and yet they're also extremely brave. This is what she says, I believe this is in October, no, late September, September 25th, 1940. They've gotten their group together, and she's uh, talking about the small things that they are doing. Uh, one woman, a concierge, she says, uh, she spends her days glued to the radio from London. She nurses a burning desire to serve. From the depths of her little conciergerie, she distributes leaflets with professional skill. One of the lodgers in her building then reproduces them in enormous numbers. A pharmacist and his wife have also set up an excellent distribution network, ensuring that the tracts are copied and sent to Fontainebleau for duplication on a Ronio machine. We, quote, accidentally leave tracts behind us on the metro, in post offices, and in letterboxes. And Mademoiselle Jean Cousseau slips them under fabric remnants in department stores, so that wherever they lurk, they are found by nimble fingers and read by eager eyes. There are lots of other people I'd like to involve in this cause. After the museum closes on Thursday, another of her friends is coming over on the Plaza Trocadero to meet with the group. Already I'm relishing the delightful prospect of introducing them to each other. Tonight after dark I plan to plaster the walls around where I live with stickers that I've made using sticky labels. And using the museum's large font typewriter, she has typed uh, Vive le Général de Gaulle on them. I've distributed these stickers to all of our friends, and they are like excited children at the prospect of putting them up in public urinals, telephone boxes, and the metro tunnels. Maurice Broadley a, the sole museum guard on our side, goes one better. He pedals up behind German trucks on his bike and carefully sticks small signs on the rear doors, reading, again, typed by me on the museum machine, we support General de Gaulle. Maurice Broadley also distributes tracts in the suburbs and in the working class areas where he has been an activist and other causes for years. And here she, this is just one example of a brief remark she has about how they're perhaps uh, in over their heads. 
Uh, she says, how bizarre it all is. Here we are, most of us, on the wrong side of 40, careering along like students, all fired up with passion and fervor, in the wake of a leader whom we know absolutely nothing, and of whom none of us has ever seen a photograph. In the whole course of human history, has there ever been anything quite like it? Thousands upon thousands of people, fired by blind faith, following an unknown figure. Perhaps this strange anonymity is even an asset, the mystery of the unknown. And that unknown figure, of course, uh, is Charles de Gaulle. And uh, I believe it's in, in August or September when he makes his famous uh, radio address from London and people in Paris are able to hear it. And uh, the people who know who General de Gaulle is uh, in France uh, think that the radio address is ridiculous, that he's a crackpot. But the people who've never heard of him before uh, derive immense hope from what he has to say. And uh, as uh, Agnès Humbert says, they end up almost fighting for him, even though they've never seen a picture of him. They've only heard his voice. Uh, but this is uh, the meat of what she gets at. And this is one of the most remarkable things I've ever read about war, as I said. Uh, they're, going, they're going along with stickers. They're going along with pamphlets. They're going along with, uh, you know, putting things in clothing stores and in urinals. Um, all these little things that are kind of like needling the Nazis. But at some point, they realize that they are capable of and that they will be asked to do more serious things. And one of these, I believe, in this situation is distributing uh, maps of the city to those who are able to use those maps well, perhaps for more violent means. And I think also by this time, they are arranging uh, safe havens for downed uh, aircraft pilots uh, throughout the city, and they are moving them around. So this things are getting more and more serious, even by, let's see, this passage is written in December of 1940. And listen to what uh, Umbert has to say here. She says, yes, a map. And with that, my mood swings abruptly in a way that is so typical of me. And my heart sinks into my boots. Okay, a map. And what will I do with this map? Pass it on to other people. And I know all too well what they will do with it. Because of my meddling, there will be widows, inconsolable mothers, fatherless children, spirits, great minds, perhaps, snuffed out before they have had a chance to make their contribution to the world. As a direct result of my meddling, people, French people, living peaceful lives, will be killed and wounded, children maimed. Where are all my lofty humanitarian ideals now? Have I taken leave of my senses? How could I ever have wanted to be involved in such a filthy business? And she says, I won't go on Sunday, and I won't mention this business about the map to her friend. She is having that, uh, those qualms of anyone who is a pacifist or leans that way or who just doesn't want to muddy their lives at all. And what she comes to realize in this next paragraph is that um, what actually is more humanitarian than trying to 
free your own city of invaders and of their inhuman and of their humiliating and uh, at many times they're violent where of, the, of their violent means of keeping control over you and this is what uh, changed her mind to realizing that what she needed to do uh, was distribute this map and do other things she says as I reach the metro station, I look up, and there, before me, heading for the Gardelest, are two German soldiers. Trudging in front of them are three porters, weighed down with packages, bolts of cloth with I don't know how many shoeboxes tied onto them with string. And suddenly I am reminded of one of those old colonial newsreels, such as Voice of Africa or some such with those long processions of, quote, native bearers carrying the baggage of two or three white explorers or exploiters, she says. A pitiful sight. It always made my heart contract with pain. And now, as I stand in the slush outside the station, watching the same spectacle unfold, the same but even more sordid, I am rooted to the spot. We simply have to stop them. We can't allow them to colonize us, to carry off all our goods on the backs of our men while they stroll along, arms swinging, faces wreathed in smiles, boots and belts polished and gleaming. We can't let it happen. And to stop it happening, we have to kill. Kill like wild beasts, kill to survive, kill by stealth, kill by treachery, kill with premeditation, kill the innocent. It has to be done, and I will do it. Later on, I'll tell Jean Cousseau about the meeting that I've set up for him, and on Sunday we'll go together to meet Roger Pons, who will give us what we need to instigate a massacre. And she ends by saying, what a filthy business. But of course it's a filthy business that she is going to allow herself to get involved in. And think to yourself, before the next part of this episode comes up, what would it take for you to have a similar reaction? So let's end the night with some poetry and let's see what London looks like filtered through the imagination of William Blake. Uh, Blake lived from 1757 until 1827 and what we're going to hear now is just a small piece from a poem that he wrote and illustrated between 1805 and 1810 called Milton. And Blake, of course, is known I guess mostly through anecdote, you have something like, let's see where it is, something like to see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. And we have something like, uh, of course, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is infinite. 
Blake is someone, it seems to me, who is known by the vividness of a few of his images, by the vividness of a few of those phrases like that. But you pick up the 1,000-page collected poems of Blake, and I can really only think of one other poet that I know, um, other than Allen Ginsberg, I suppose, but only one other person that I know personally, uh, who has said, you know, you should really get down and read these long visionary poems by Blake. Uh, I've said recently, and I think it's a, a good way to think about him, that if you look at uh, Middle English poetry and the English Romantic poets, that Chaucer and Wordsworth are kind of a good match for each other. They are, I don't want to say they're simplistic, but they are just more easy to read, more easy to enjoy, the way that they write and the things that they write about. Whereas if you look at uh, Chaucer's contemporary, William Langland and his poem, Piers Plowman, and then you go to Blake, um, they seem like they would have been good friends, these grumpy prophets who were writing difficult poems. They were writing them in difficult ways. It seems that uh, in a way that what William Blake will become over the next decades or a few hundred years is sort of what Langland has become, a specialization. Um, or he may just be a poster on the wall, one of his great images. But uh, for that reason, I think it's worth just reading one page out of a poem that's probably about 200 pages, and you can get a sense of Blake's power, but also uh, you can see how he mythologizes his own city, his own hometown, London, and also brings in the entire uh, country of Britain into that mythologization, but also how he can't help interweaving his own mythological system into it. And I think you'll be able to tell uh, which parts are actual places in London and Britain and which parts are things that came out of Blake's mind and how they are very difficult to untangle. But if you had perhaps a hundred pages of just passages like these, uh, you might have a better sense of just what it was that Blake was able to do. This is from his long poem, Milton. And it says, From Golganutza, the spiritual fourfold London eternal, in immense labors and sorrows, ever building, ever falling, through Albion's four forests, which overspread all the earth, from London stone to Blackheath east, to Hounslow west, to Finchley north, to Norwood south, and the weights of Anatharman's loom play lulling cadences on the winds of Albion, from Kythness in the north to Lizard Point and Dover in the south. Loud sounds the hammer of Los, and loud his bellows is heard, before London to Hampstead's breadths and Highgate's heights to Stratford and Old Bow, and across to the gardens of Kensington, and Tyburn's brook, loud groans, Thames beneath the iron forge, of Rintra and Palombron and Theotorm and Bromion, to forge the instruments of harvest, the plough and harrow to pass over the nations. The Surrey hills glow like the clinkers of the furnace, Lambeth's vale where Jerusalem's foundations began, 
where they were laid in ruins, where they were laid in ruins from every nation and oak groves, rooted dark gleams before the furnace mouth, a heap of burning ashes. When shall Jerusalem return and overspread all the nations? Return, return to Lambeth's vale, O building of human souls. Thence stony druid temples overspread the island white, and thence from Jerusalem's ruins, from her walls of salvation and praise, through the whole earth were reared from Ireland to Mexico and Peru west, and east to China and Japan till Babel the specter of Albion, frowned over the nations in glory and war, all things begin and end in Albion's ancient druid rocky shore. But now the starry heavens are fled from the mighty limbs of Albion. Loud sounds the hammer of Los, loud turn the wheels of Antharmon. Her looms vibrate with soft affections, weaving the web of life out from the ashes of the dead. Los lifts his iron ladles with molten ore, he heaves the iron cliffs in his rattling chains from Hyde Park to the almshouses of Mile End and Old Bow. Here the three classes of mortal men take their fixed destinations, and hence they overspread the nations of the whole earth, and hence the web of life is woven, and the tender sinews of life created, and the three classes of men regulated by Los's hammer. The first, the elect, from before the foundation of the world. The second, the redeemed. The third, the reprobate, and formed to destruction from the mother's womb. Follow with me my plow. And it might be worth reading a tiny paragraph here before the end from a biography of William Blake that I think says more about him than almost entire entire books do. And this comes from Peter Aykroyd's biography of Blake, and this might give some sense of how someone who lived in London in the late 1700s and early 1800s came to write poetry like that. And uh, this is what Peter Aykroyd has to say about William Blake. He says, his independence meant that he could preserve his vision beyond all taint, and that integrity is an essential part of his genius, but it also encouraged him to withdraw from the world of common discourse, which isn't to say that he didn't try. He did try, and the other artists and many of the other poets that he came across uh, found him unbearable and thought that his work was that of a crackpot. And Peter Aykroyd says, although these consequences were not immediately apparent, over the years, his range of reference and allusion became more private and more confined. Out of his isolation, he created a great myth, but it was one that was never vouchsafed to his contemporaries, and it was one that, even now, is generally neglected or misunderstood. Blake's life is, in that sense, a parable of the artist who avoids the marketplace, where all others come to buy and sell. He preserved himself inviolate, but his freedom became a form of solitude. He worked for himself, and he listened only to himself, and in the process he lost any ability to judge his own work. 
he had the capacity to become a great public and religious poet, but instead he turned in upon himself and gained neither influence nor reputation. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.